from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Monday, the 22nd of January. I hope you had a fantastic weekend. Got a little work done to get ahead. Got a little relaxing done. Maybe even made some progress on your one, not resolution, but goal for the year that you're going to work on all year. Remember, just because you've maybe not had as much progress as you would have wanted already doesn't mean the year is over. You can still continue to work on that. Whatever you said, hey, my goal for the year is blank. The year is not over. You can continue. Even if you've already failed, you can get up and try again. Got a fantastic show for you today and some great stuff coming up all week. Daniel Todd is with us today. He is paying gamers, perhaps you, probably you, to play the games. He is an amazing story, uh, has an amazing story. You will be blown away, impressed. And the model is so new, so unique. I was just really impressed with him and can't wait to share this little School for Startups story with you. After that, Dimitri Shapiro will be with us. He is with Mind Studio. They are an AI company doing some amazing stuff. He was the CTO over at MySpace, if we all remember that. And we have a really interesting conversation about MySpace and why it failed. His new company is VC-backed to the tune of some $36 million. And so there you go. I mean, that talks about uh, how important it would be uh, or how well-received it's already been. This AI product is used to build tools for small businesses. So it is so important that you listen to this and get engaged with his product because it will save you money and it will save you time. I promise. Also, during the week, we have uh, tomorrow or I guess on the next show, we have Andrew Hayes, who is with a company called Alta Coaching. He built 100 clients through the app, through using an app. And so great model for you to copy. And then later on in the week, we have the guy behind the whiteboards, you know, the smart board in classrooms and offices all over the one that you write on and it copies and remembers and takes notes for you. That guy, the CEO and founder of that company is with us later on in the week as well. And then next week, the week after that, we have a guy from NASA NASA laser scientist who has actually proved that lasers can help regrow your hair. So for all you follically challenged people like me, you will learn and enjoy this uh, conversation as well. We also have a great DEI uh, microaggressions conversation coming up here in the next week or so as well. 
For all of you new listeners, I want to make sure you understand our thesis. We try to make it super clear. We don't talk about it with every single guest, but it certainly is the backbone that binds all of the things that we do. Every belief comes through this, that entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, that anyone can be a successful entrepreneur. All you need to do is find an idea, go copy it, emulate it. Do not try to find a new idea. 93% of business ideas are copies. There's no reason for you to go out there and try to do something new. It is not necessary. Go copy, but limit the risk to $5,000. If you can prove, or you should be able to prove for $5,000 that you can get the thing to work and make it a profitable thing. Maybe you can't get 100% going, but you should be able to prove it for that. And then finally, passion is awesome for the church, the synagogue, the mosque, and the bedroom, but not necessarily required for your business. All you need is to like the business more than than working for the man. If you would like to work for the man, then don't be an entrepreneur. But if the idea of your self-determination, self-control, kill what you eat, or is it reverse that, eat what you kill, that appeals to you, then you need to become an entrepreneur. You don't have to love it. All you have to do is like it more than working for the man. Anyway, great show. We'll be right back to get started. Thanks for being with us so very much. Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. I'm very excited to introduce a really interesting story. Please welcome Daniel Todd to the show. He is the founder and CEO of Influence Mobile. It is a really interesting idea. The idea, the premise is to reward you for things that you already do every day, your everyday activities. It's called a rewarded life. I will let him explain it. He is very successful in the outreach. He writes for both Inc. and Entrepreneur Magazines. He has been on the Inc. 5000 list and has won the Best Place to Work Awards and things like that. Pretty impressive. He also is very active in mentoring and works with the Disney Accelerator and Techstar programs. Daniel Todd, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome, Jim. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk about this topic and see if if I can't learn a few things and maybe share with some other people and make make working in a remote work environment better for everybody. All right. Well, I'm fascinated by the business Influence Mobile. So you're going to reward me for what I already do anyway. Am I confused? Am I getting this wrong? Uh, no. So we. Right now, our main business is to actually let people be rewarded for playing games on their phone. I don't. Do you play any games on your phone, or anybody in your family play games on your phone? Uh, a little bit, yes. Not so. Uh, uh, my, some, yes. But if I were yeah, getting paid, I'd do it a lot more. <laughs> 
Well, there's, uh, there's an incredible amount of money spent in games. More money is spent in mobile games on, on all movies, all concerts, and all live sports uh, combined. So it's a lot of money. It's about $100 billion a year. And what's crazy to think about is that only about 5% of the people that play games, and these are like the Candy Crushes and Yahtzees and Scrabble games, uh, only about 5% of people spend a, a vast majority of that money. And so there's an incredible value to game developers to finding and keeping those people. So sort of our first product was a product called Engage that let pe- lets people discover these games. They, we have an app called Rewarded Play that they download and then they can play these games and then they earn points just for playing, but then they earn a lot more points for spending money. So kind of like a 10 to 20% cash back model. So our target audience is spending you know anywhere from five to fifty dollars a day but we have people that spend thousands of dollars a month and they're getting hundreds of dollars back for us and so that was sort of our first product we now let people so that you know they were already playing games we're not convincing people who've never spent money to spend a bunch of money but we're telling people that do spend money hey come and discover these games and new games and apps in our ecosystem and then you're going to earn you know way more rewards with us than you would just finding these games in the app store all right, I'm on the website now and see some of the uh, games and stuff. That's brilliant, Daniel. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> How did you discover that the developers were willing to pay? And is it like EA or people like that? That You don't have to give us exact names, but I'm just throwing out an example. Uh, talk to us a little bit about discovering that there was a model and who's paying for all this. Sure. So. Well, it's a two-part answer. So the first part is that it's not my first startup. So I started a company in 1999 that was in the desktop space. And that's where I got my first exposure to distributing content in, in effectively some kind of ad-supported model. So before the Google and uh, Yahoo toolbar sort of took over the world, I had built a company that distributed a browser add-on that people could get free content in exchange for seeing ads. And so... When I started this company in 2012, I, I wanted to uh, really focus more on affinities, things that people really liked and have a closer association with the rewards. And so for a while, we dabbled in a different product and we worked with celebrities and shopping rewards programs. And then we partnered with Facebook and we started giving points for people to try new things. Well, those things were apps and it went exceptionally well. And we were making millions of dollars and Facebook was a great partner. But then they told us like, hey you know, we're not going to let you do this forever. And I also knew they weren't sharing with us what the game data was. And so we started building this product called Engage back in 2018. And we started, you know, working with resellers, people who weren't the direct app developers. And so it was actually easier because we were small. We're making a few million dollars a year. But as we started getting games in, we eventually closed a direct deal with a a large games company that I probably shouldn't name. Uh, And it really hit it out of the park. And now we're wrecking. And so we just evolved the product over time with one very strong partner and then started bringing in lots of other game developers. Now we, we work with a hundred of the top largest game developers. Most of them, you know, spend anywhere from a few million to five to $10 million a year paying for us to get, find and keep their very, you know, highest value players. Amazing. Unbelievable. And the statistics, the, stat you threw out a hundred billion bigger than all sports and movies combined is just 
I mean, that should really open people's eyes to where opportunities are. So I love this story, Daniel. And what makes for you a huge super target? Uh, is it 18 year old boy or what's a whale um, look great, like in your world? Great, great question. This is also surprising for most people. Would you believe it's a 70 year old grandma? Yeah, I would because, uh, I have a, you know, I know 70 year old grandmothers who spend the entire day on the shopping channel. And so yep. I can imagine that there's a huge demographic of lonely people who find this engaging. Yes. Yeah. They're not all lonely, but they are typically all older females. So females over the age of 35, roughly up to, you know, 95, uh, spend about 60% more in these games, the candy crushes of the world than, than any other demographic. And so it doesn't mean that there aren't older males and younger females and younger males that also spend money. But as a, as an audience, right, as a, as a, as a group of people, this group spends more. So then game developers are willing to pay more to companies like us to find and keep those people. And so, and if they pay us more, then we can give the, that group higher rewards. And then that creates more loyalty. And so it creates this nice virtuous circle, which is the better we can do at really finding the right target. And so I think it's not all females. We just launched a new app called play for that's going to be targeting actually mid core games, which are games more focused on uh, men in general, but people that like to play more intensive games, kind of like similar to console games and less, you know, word and tile games and max three games. So there's, there's lots of people playing all kinds of games all the time on the phones and we try to give them a place to earn rewards and then they end up sticking around and that increases retention, which makes the game developers happy. Yeah. And it's, it's been a very fun time. It wasn't fun for a lot of these 12 years, but the last few years have been really great as we've kind of nailed the model. So, and how do you find grandma? Uh, what's, <laughs> do you go through the so, computer or through the phone or through home and garden magazine? How, how does grandma get into your network? Sure. Yeah. So it's, it's primarily through games. So, you know, we, we spend marketing dollars playing to, and then just percolate to, yeah. to your, okay. Yeah, so we we run it. If you've ever played any of these games, there's something called rewarded video where you might run out of gold or stars or whatever you need, and you can watch an ad that gives you some additional currency in the game. And so oftentimes we'll buy uh, placements in these rewarded videos. And so you're playing a game, not getting rewarded, and you see a video about how you could get rewarded, and that's you know pretty appealing to people. So we get anywhere between fifteen to 20,000 people a day download our apps and then say hey yeah i'm willing to try this and then we we want to keep them all and make them all happy and we want them all to stick around forever but we're really looking for those the grandmas and the young men and women everybody in between that spends money in games and like i said we're effectively like a, a cashback model for them which is is very popular and do you do any out outside advertising or anything at all or is it purely through the game itself do you do anything else oh well when i say game i mean we're yeah i mean we spend 80 to a hundred thousand dollars a day on marketing you know so we're, we're buying ads on all all over the place we've tried connected tv we do advertising everywhere but most of them are in some way you know people we, we don't throw up a billboard on times square if that's what you're asking like we're not we've tested tv advertising but 
the most effective thing is like if if a person is on their phone playing playing any game in the world right then they're most likely a target for us so that's where most of the money goes but we we experiment with you know with every kind of new thing that comes out we we're just looking for people we've done partnerships uh in the past where we've promoted white labeled versions of these products um so yeah there's a lot of different ways to to find people daniel tell us the entrepreneurial history we sort of alluded to the beginning in terms of ideation and where the idea uh came from but talk to us about raising money and getting partner one and employee two and all of it. Talk to us about the beginning days as if you were telling us your entrepreneurial history. Okay. So yeah, I had started a company in 1999 to 2007, left that company for, uh, and, and took a few years off and then started working for a company that was actually, uh, non, it wasn't a nonprofit, but it helped nonprofits raise money through shopping uh, programs. And so we created a toolbar, the nonprofits could promote it. And during that time, I started running across a lot of celebrity nonprofits. Uh, and so I met this fellow who, who represented about two dozen celebrities and I was telling him our stuff. And he's like, well, they don't really, <laughs> this is sad. They don't really care about as much about raising money for these nonprofits as they do raising money for themselves. So they're like, well, do you, would you build a product that would help them just make more money? Uh, this is in the early days of Facebook where people had millions and millions of users and they weren't sure how to monetize it. And so, so I ended up leaving that other company and started at the time, uh, what became influence mobile is called affinity influencing systems. And we actually, uh, partnered with them. We built uh, a shopping rewards app for Jillian Michaels of the TV show, biggest loser. If you remember her, and she would post on her Facebook page and say, Hey, win a treadmill or a virtual workout session with me or this or the other thing, install this toolbar. And every time you shop, you'll see little icons for our partners. And when you spend money with those partners, you'll earn points to meet me. And that's actually how we, I, uh, we, we went to market kind of with that concept. So how I got the money was I, uh, had some friends who knew me from the previous business. I woke up at nine o'clock on, uh, I think it was April 7th of 2012 and came up with this idea. I went to lunch with these guys and one of them wrote me a $25,000 check, uh, at lunch and I was in business. And then I, I, started meeting with a few other folks raised about a hundred thousand dollars and then went and tried to find my co-founder. And what were you looking for in the co-founder? What skill set were you missing? Uh, well, I'm not a developer, so I needed somebody who was, uh, capable of taking business ideas that I had and and taking it to market, uh, finding people that I like were very, was, you know, no, no, somebody that I trusted and wanted to work with was very important. So, there was only a few people who qualified and uh, his name's Gabe Coyne. Thankfully uh, I, I went and talked with Gabe and he was, you know, running his own shop and happily making money and had never considered something like that. And so he wanted to talk to his wife and, but you know, I was already friends with them. And so then we went to lunch one day and I kind of pitched him on the idea and he agreed to come on board and, 60 days later, we actually had a product out to market uh, that Jillian Michaels was. He didn't give me a check. No, that was a different lunch. Yeah. Different later lunch. So I raised, I raised about a hundred, raised about a hundred grand, you know, enough to kind of like pay his bills for a little while. 
right? So, uh, and that was mostly, you know, you asked how I did it. So most of the time, you know, I lived in Seattle at the time. I knew a lot of angel investors that I had just met over the course of being in business. And the fact that I was in business and had built a company up to $80 million was a very big factor in increasing people's willingness to participate this time around. And so it, it wasn't easy uh, to raise the money, but it also wasn't impossible, right? I was going around talking to people, telling them the story. I never tried to raise a huge round. I just kept raising very small amounts of money that would kind of help me get to my next milestone. Then I would start telling the story to more and more investors. We now today have a total of about a hundred investors. Um, we raised a total of $6 million over those first three or four years. Uh, and then, uh, we struggled for many years, but then finally reached profitability about three years ago and we've been growing quite fast. So thankfully we haven't had to raise money in, I don't know, almost eight, eight years. So we don't, I don't expect us to need to raise more money, but, um, yeah, so I'll stop, see if that all made sense. It does. How do you say the first guy that gives you or a woman that gives you a $25,000 check, how do you decide what to offer them in terms of equity or, you know, how do you have that first negotiation when their 25,000 represents a hundred thousand or a hundred percent of the, you know, of the firm's assets, except for of course the intellectual property, but how do you present? Sure. You know, I'm going to, you, you only get 2% or did they get 50%? So to start with, most of what we did were in convertible notes. And so you don't really give them shares like they don't, they just have a note that bears interest that has some rules about it and how, and those rules include if you raise a certain amount of more money down the road, you can then convert this note into equity and it typically has like a max valuation. So they might say, you know, I think that our very first people were like just maybe not even a million dollar valuation or two million dollar valuation, and that is just one hundred percent people making up numbers on what you know they think is fair, and so they're giving you twenty five, fifty grand, saying like, hey, you know, if you go raise two hundred grand more, I'll be comfortable converting this to equity, but if you don't raise two hundred grand more you got to pay me 6% interest, you know, or whatever the interest rate is. And this is, this is due back in 24 months. Now I, they all know if your company goes out of business, they're not getting that money back, but it, it, it kind of punts, it kicks that answer. You know, the answer you're asking me for down the, down the line. So you get a little bit more momentum. You tell a little bit more stories. And so we didn't ultimately value the company through a convertible event until uh, three years after we had started raising money. And that was, uh, when we did that, we had, uh, Facebook as a partner, we were making millions of dollars a month in revenue. And so when we finally converted everybody, we had a $25 million pre-money valuation, but we were going to do something North of $10 million in revenue that year. And so then we raised 2 million in new money and then took all the old convertible notes and converted them all into equity at that. And then they were all converted uh, into what are called shadow shares, which is a convertible note, but they all have their own individual price based on whatever the cap was that we kind of agreed to, which went over, went up over time as the story got better, right? And so... How many of your employees I'll come put, to the office? Do you have an office or do you remote? 
So we're all, well, we have offices. Yes. So we have uh, a, a bunch of folks in the Seattle area. We have a small office there. I'd say people go in there maybe a couple times a month just to get together socially for lunch. We have a, a bigger group of people in Montreal, Canada, uh, and a, a group of folks go in regularly. I'd say three or four people go in regularly to the offices because, you know, they either have kids at home or they just want to, you know, they're close enough that the commute's not a bother. But uh, the vast majority of almost 80 employees, I'd say 70 of them are, 75 of them are working from home 95% of the time. And how do you keep them motivated, excited, tuned in, water coolered up, gossiped up? They got to know who's, you know, <laughs> they got to know the gossip too. How does all that happen sure. if they're remote? Well, one of my favorite products that we've, we've been using this year is a, a Slack integration called Apaco. And it's a, it's a peer recognition product that lets you say, I can say, hey, Jim, I had a great time talking with you today on the call. I really appreciate your help. And then in Slack, I'm, I'm tagging you and I'm, I'm, I send you a virtual taco. And then this product keeps track of a leaderboard. And we actually reward people for how many tacos they give, not how many tacos they get. But one of the most fun things I get to do each day is I go through this channel where everybody's posting and you get to see these fun interactions that, you know, in a remote work environment, you would never see where it's like, Hey, Jim was working with Steve and Lucy was working with, you know, Megan. And uh, you, you see this appreciation and sometimes they're really, really meaningful. Like they put some thought into the the thankfulness of this. And so I don't, not exactly water cooler, chatter but it is a fun way to see what people are doing and how people stay engaged and, and i'd say that's been one of the most successful programs and then with your tacos you can generally like get company swag or just like earlier this month this was a fun story uh we decided we wanted to do a fundraiser during the holiday season and we were going to donate uh, five thousand dollars to a local charity and so i i was going to let people donate tacos so they're virtual tacos instead of getting a company t-shirt you could donate to this charity and so we have 70 employees and so i was like well let's say everybody gives 10 tacos you know so i came up with this number of 700 tacos i'm like well that you know i don't want to miss this number right i, I don't want to miss that all month to do it so i'm like i can probably get people to give that many tacos so i, I set this whole thing up in this system i send out the notice and then I look, I just look away from my screen for a second. I'm doing something. And then I get a notice that says the fundraiser's over. And I'm like, oh, what the crap? Like the whole thing broke. It took two minutes for everybody in my company to donate 700 tacos because they were like so thrilled that they could now use their tacos to like help a nonprofit. And so I was so excited. I was like, well, we can't, we can't have this whole thing only last two minutes. So I'm like, well, I'll double. I'm like, someone must have just given up bunch of tacos i'm like i don't even know how many tacos people have so we did another one and i gave an another larger amount of money away if we did 1400 tacos and i send out again because everybody's messaging me saying like hey how do i give away my tacos and then that next one took three minutes and then we call the tacos for good and all of a sudden everybody was very happy and so now everybody wants more tacos and so everybody's giving more tacos and so like that's just one one way that i've really enjoyed seeing people be connected so like their work in a given day that shows appreciation towards somebody else now is being doubly, you know, benefited because we're sending some money to some people in the area that need help. So that's one thing I'm proud of. That's a great story, Daniel. Great one. 
Daniel, what's your entrepreneurial pet peeve, lesson, obsession? You know, when you think about entrepreneurship, you want to tell your 18 year old, 21 year old kid this. What's your thought? What What's your obsession? Uh, well, my obsession is making everybody like, entrepreneurial making this obsession. place the uh, entrepreneurial obsession. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, yeah. My entrepreneurial obsession is. Uh, making the place that people work in the best possible place. Like people will hear it and I want this to be the best place to work. And, and it kind of feeds into this topic, which is like, how do you keep employees engaged and to be the best place to work? You need to, you need to make them uh, feel engaged. And you do that through things like, you know, I mentioned the Hitako. We, we, we do a lot of offsites where we bring people, uh, every year in January, bring everybody to Vegas so you can build relationships. And we're going to go dune bugging and go see Eric de Soleil and, you know, do some work, but primarily build relationships. Uh, we do virtual events and those types of things. So if my kids were ans- giving you that question, they'd say like, all he talks about is company culture and building company culture. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with that. It sounds like you're doing a great job. Daniel, I love your story. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Influence mobile sounds awesome. It makes me want to go play a game. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. I hope hope we help some startups today. I think you did. How do we find out more? Follow you online. Continue to interact. Uh, LinkedIn is the best place. You can look up Influence Mobile on LinkedIn or myself, Daniel Todd, CEO of Influence Mobile on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Daniel, thank you so much, and I hope you'll come back and give us an update in a year or so. Happy to do so. Thanks, Jim. And we will be right back. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another amazing guest. Please welcome Dimitri Shapiro to the show. He has been behind some companies that you know of and has raised $140 million for three companies that he's working on post sort of his significant run. He was with the, some company called Google He was the chief technology officer at MySpace, and now he's gone out and done these companies, as I said, on his own. The latest company that he's working on and what we want to talk about today is called UAI. It's a marketplace, kind of like an app store for artificial intelligence. What do we call them? Apps? Uh, Dimitri, welcome. What do we call those things? Thanks so much. Um, excited to join you here. Uh, that's a great question. We tend to call them apps, AI apps, AI or apps. AI-powered AI, AI apps, or AI apps, or mostly we call them AIs. AIs. It's an AI. It's an, it's an, it's an artif- you, you build artificial intelligences, and, and those are, you know, applications. Yeah, AIs. AIs, okay. 
Well, that's the new word then, I guess. We had to come up with something because I don't like saying app because an app is something for your phone. I think in that definition doesn't need to get any bigger. Right. Although, you know, we do most of our computing from phones, we humans. And so most of these things are engaged with via phones. And these AIs, you can put them on your home screen on your phone, iOS or Android, and you can push a button. And there you are utilizing this AI on your phone or your desktop or anywhere else. You know, people print. These are web applications instead of URLs. So you can print out a QR code and put it on your business. And when people show up at your door, like there's a restaurant in San Diego uh, called Gomlet Factory, that if you show up, there's a QR code and you scan it and you get to engage with their AI. It knows all about the restaurant. It can help you book a table. It can do all kinds of things. Interesting. Great usage case. So it's what, what's the difference between that and open table or, or something? Does it actually learn me and my dietary? Or what's it do different than Open Table? Yeah, so this specific AI uh, is uh, integrated only with Gomlet uh, Factory's, uh, you know, booking system, right? And and can only do that. And you could get access to it actually remotely, but they mostly just promote it as a QR code uh, at you know on their front door, and so you'd need to be there in person. To do it, and again, even though it can it can reserve a table for you, like it can do many other things. So before AI, apps like OpenTable, right, developers wrote the app. So product managers, UX people, developers thought what interfaces should be exposed to humans in this application so that when human tries to book a table or, you know, find some more information about a restaurant, you have to sort of be explicit about like, here's how that thing works and what the interfaces look like. When you're building... Uh, AI-powered applications, when you're building AIs, uh, you can be that specific if you want, or you can sort of be more loose. And because the AI is able to understand what it is the human is trying to do without needing to be programmed specifically to understand that, well, the AI can do a bunch of other things, like engage with you in a conversation of why the, you know, the Southwest omelet is, you know, more nutritious, but you know, not for people that like some other thing. Like, so like these kinds of things you wouldn't be able to potentially engage with on open table, but with AIs, you can, you can go into all kinds of, you know, nuances that, that wouldn't be available in old time apps. Right. But back to the important thing, the marketplace. So UAI has what thousands of AIs now? Is it that much? over? Yeah, over ten thousand now. Okay, yeah. and they do what? So explain what I could yeah. hope to get there. Yeah, so I think probably a better way of looking at uh, UAI is not from the lens of a marketplace, even though there is one. Uh, the real power is in a tool we have called Mind Studio, uh, and you can just go mindstudio.ai, and you can learn to use this tool by watching a YouTube tutorial. You don't need any technical skills whatsoever. And, and then you can start building these AIs for yourself or for your company, your team, as a business, whatever. And so that's what people have done. Now, over 25,000 people have shown up and learned to build these AI-powered applications. And out of these, you know, over 10,000 that they've built, uh, you know, many of these things sit internally within various types of enterprises. 
and 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 you know transform the you know, sort of as part of this thing called digital transformation that enterprises have been going through for the last you know three decades, four decades, and so it helps them optimize their processes and, and, and do many things. I'll revisit that. Or they are uh, helping small and medium-sized businesses operate better, or they are for consumers. Again, with these over 10,000 AIs, they already sort of exist in, in practically every category you could imagine. Things for entertainment, things that are utilities, things that are uh, generators of, of content or analyzers or assistants, etc. I'll give you one example. So I recently did a, a video interview with with a customer uh, who's a sales enablement uh, professional inside of a, a cybersecurity platform as a service company. His job is to make sure that their sales team, sales engineering team, and customer support teams are well-trained and assessed, uh, are well in you know, continuing education, uh, and are well-equipped and, and sort of operationally efficient. That's his job. And so he's now built, he learned to use Mind Studio, and he's built an AI that trains his sales force meaning each salesperson engages with an internal AI that was built using MindStudio. That AI is trained internally on the knowledge base of the company. So it understands how salespeople are supposed to sell, what the products do, all the value propositions, yada, yada, what might the objections be. And the AI, as each salesperson engages with it, assesses the salesperson's strengths and weaknesses, helps fill in the weaknesses, uh, and, and, you know, prints out reports and ranks him and does all of that. So he's got one AI that trains salespeople, another AI that trains sales engineers, another AI that trains the customer support people, and then a bunch of AIs that he's built uh, that do various types of things inside the enterprise to, again, automate things or make them smarter, sort of infuse AI into all the nooks and crannies of an operation, in this case, of a cybersecurity platform as a service or the omelet factory, or again, many, many other things. And how realistic is it for, you know, a non-technical person from Silicon Valley to do that, to build an AI for their business in North Carolina that specializes yeah. in uh, gizzards? My nine-year-old son, I have five kids, my almost 10-year-old son still struggles with reading a little bit, but is a prolific AI developer. Uh, now, again, what does that mean? So uh, the skills required to build uh, an AI is, again, you need to watch a YouTube tutorial. There's actually a bunch if you want to get into new nuances, like these very powerful tools. So you can learn to build in, in 18 minutes, and then you can spend another you know, day or two to really hone your skills, but certainly in a couple of days of focus, you become a master at building AIs. No prior sort of skills required. You need to be able to read and write. And the real valuable skill is to be able to articulate in, in human language and words what the AI should do and, and, and to specify what it should do. I'll give you an example. Uh, this Saturday, I spoke with a, a, an old friend of mine who got out of tech and decided to buy a business, which is a pool cleaning business. And so he's now in, into, uh, into this business. And he said, well, what can I do with this? And I said, well, what does the business do? He's like, well, I just send out a bunch of these technicians to go and service people's pools. And I'm like, and you got to train these technicians. He's like, yeah, it's really hard. And it's like, we're trying to cut costs. And so you get people that aren't very trained. You got to train them. And, and then, you know, and, and they need assistance periodically. Yeah, so they call me and whatever. I said, great, let's build you a pool service technician co-pilot, an assistant. 
And in less than 15 minutes, we built for his business, no lines of code written whatsoever, built for his business, this assistant. And, and when he tried it out and tested it, like it, it blew his mind, like it transforms his business. Now, every pool technician in their pocket on their smartphone is going to go out and have access to this assistant. They can just say what's happening with the pool and the assistant will tell them exactly what needs to be done. Or they can say the pH is 7.2 and it says, great, here are all the steps you must take to do it. Make sure you watch out for this and watch out for that. So yes, everyone can do it. Wow. And it pulled all of that data from right. its own internal engines and so when you programmed it, you didn't have to teach it anything about the pH. You simply said, That's right. create, you know, a learning situation where they can call in and input the data. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so this is a very important point. So, uh, first of all, mind studio, uh, is model agnostic AI model agnostic. What does that mean? It means there's many different AI models out there. Some names listeners may have heard is like a company called OpenAI has something called chat GPT. There's another competitor called Anthropic that has a model called Claude. Uh, Google is a competitor with a model called Palm. Uh, Meta, the old Facebook, is a competitor. They've got many models, mostly called Llama. There's this new French company called Mistral that's got a model. There's tens of thousands of models now. Mind Studio is model agnostic. It supports all the models. And so uh, the, and the models have all been trained on you know basically all the information in the world arguably you know all the printed publicly available information and in that printed publicly available information are is knowledge about in this case pool cleaning and so we didn't have to teach it anything about pool cleaning because it's already learned everything that's ever been published about pool cleaning it certainly knows more than my friend who just got into pool cleaning and bought this business uh, or his technician and so yes i we didn't have to teach it that but for other applications, like the one I was telling you about with these training of salespeople and sales engineers, that model uh, or that AI uh, obviously uses a model or you can use multiple models in the same workflow in AI, but also you can upload your own data. And so you can augment or even replace the knowledge bases of these models with your own data in the right situations because sometimes you need your own data to do it because you want it to only use your data for example and not use its knowledge of the world or you want it to use its knowledge of the world but always reference your data to make sure that your data acts as a filter for example or as a bias there so that kind of stuff amazing dimitri how do i know what is ai a bull since you're going to go ai's I'm going to go a step further. How do I know what is AI a bull in my business? Because I can imagine a lot of owners, if I called up and says, I, I want to write an AI for your business. I, I got, I don't got anything that can be done with AI. You know, we, we got to yeah. fill out these labels. We got to stick the labels on. You can't use too much glue. Cause if you use too much glue, the packages stick together. And then one guy gets two and no one guy gets zero. You know, that's where yeah. their thinking is. Dimitri, you, you can't yeah. use too much glue. How do I sell this to the too much glue guy? He also eats yeah, so look, the glue, by the way, but that's a totally <laughs> that's separate true. story. Yeah, that's right. Uh, look, so I like your uh, AI a bull. Uh, I use another sort of term like that where you should AI-ify, AI-ify oh, yes. you know, various parts of your business. 
in, in the same realm. So uh, here, that's a great question, really great question. Uh, I propose the, the following uh, approach to it. Imagine that uh, you could hire a human or a bunch of humans, as many humans as you wanted. You could hire a bunch of humans for your small business, whatever your small business is. And those humans are some of the smartest people in the world. And they will work for you, and they can show up and help your business. What things might you ask them to help you with? Well, you might say, listen, I, I run this pizzeria. I'm no analyst, you know, no data analyst. I collect a bunch of data. And once in a while, I look at these spreadsheets and I do like some sorting, but I don't really understand anything about it. Could you maybe like take a look at some of this data and see if you could find something that might be interesting that would help me improve my sales or make my pizzeria more effective? The answer is yes. Smart person should be able to go and do that. And therefore, they say, I can do that. Or you might say, boy, it would be great if we could do a little bit better in marketing. But marketing takes a lot of time. I got to be creative. I got to create all of these materials. I got to like do a bunch of writing, blah, 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 blah. Well, a smart person that's working for you, you could say, hey, could you just take over marketing and, and, and help me write all of these things and figure out like what are the different personas and their different messaging and create all the collaterals. And then, you know, once the, the campaigns have run, analyze them and pick the right ones. You can, yes, a smart person can do that. And this AI can do that too. So basically anything that you do in your business that one, you don't want to do, or two, you wish there was someone who could do it and do it better than you, or do it faster, or whatever. Then you can AIify any of those things. Pretty yeah, much do things thing. like reach huh. into LinkedIn and go to all of my LinkedIn connections, and can it do stuff like that, Dimitri? So to be able to go, it can, it can, uh, it can hit. APIs, so it's a little bit of a technical term for people who may not understand, but, but it can talk to other services. And so if there is a LinkedIn API, although I don't know of one that's available, that would allow you to do that, then, then it can do all of those things. For things like that, you might need to go and, and get the help of a developer, of a software developer, to simply write a little crawler for you that indexes this part of LinkedIn that you want and then sort of exposes this API. So again, there are certain things that might require the need for a developer to do a little bit of work for something like that. But, uh, but it, it, can, it, can, it can hit websites, so you can, you can uh, create things that take a URL and go and grab that URL and fetch all the content of it and analyze it. So for example, like uh, lots of people have created these amazing summarizers, right? Like reading long articles, long reads is great, but ain't nobody got time for that. And so you can easily build a summarizer that allows you to just put in the URL of where you want to go and it goes and grabs it. You don't have to read it. It pulls out all the relevant points, but based upon not just general relevant points, but, but from your context, right? Like if you're a really technical person, it'll give you the technical point of view of the summary. If you're not technical, it'll give you that technical point of view. If you're in the industry, it will give you a bunch of other uh, you know, materials that can help frame it. If you're not in the industry, it's not going to con confuse you with a bunch of jargon. And so again, you can build these really, really powerful, whether summarizers, analyzers, aut automation, things, etc. And again, all of this without really needing to understand anything about building applications. You, the skill you need is the ability to train another human. Again, if a brilliant person shows up at your business and you say, I want you to do something, well, what do you want me to do? 
Well, I want you to do marketing. Okay, great. What is marketing? Well, I want you to get me more customers. That's good enough. Okay. Or I want you to get me more customers, but I want you to use specifically these services. And this is what I want. So you can be as specific as you want, or a lot of the magic is you don't have to be very specific at all. Because you can just show up and say, generally make my business grow. And these AIs understand what it takes to make small business grow. Dimitri, we only have a couple minutes left. Tell us a very brief history of the entrepreneurship behind this. When did you get the idea to build this, the marketplace, and then the, uh, the mind studio as well? How did you, how much money did you raise for this? How big a team have you built? Give us some of the entrepreneurial highlights, please <laughs> real fast. Yes, yeah, so we're a venture backed company. We're seven years old. Uh, we've raised uh, $36 million so far. Um, this is my third venture backed company as a founder. I, before this, I built a, a large competitor to YouTube called Vio Networks. I raised $70 million for that. I built an enterprise software cybersecurity company called Aconix Systems, and I raised $34 million for that. And then between those gigs, I, I was at Google on the main campus for four years from 2012 to 2016, uh, running three, running product on three machine learning teams there. And also I was the chief technology officer of MySpace music for those that remember MySpace. Uh, so I'm an old nerd. I, I started writing code in 1984 when I was 14 years old and, and did that. So the idea for this, um, well, so again, I was working on machine learning things in, in May of 2012 is when I really started doing it, uh, at Google. And uh, it was clear then uh, that, you know, AI was making, uh, machine learning specifically, was, was making good progress. Uh, and again, I've sort of stayed current and monitored that throughout, that it became clear to us that this was sort of a new era of innovation specifically driven by these generative AI models because of this new architecture called Transformers that was developed actually at Google and then sort of perfected at, at OpenAI. And so uh, we started working on MindStudio. Um, a year ago, a year ago. And, uh, but again, kind of thinking about these things for over a decade now in various, uh, capacities. Well, it's an amazing story, Dimitri, and thank you so much for sharing it. I think we have one minute left. What happened? Why is MySpace not, uh, Facebook? Yeah. What, what, yeah, great what question. was the distinction? What happened? There is a guy named Ray Oldenburg. Ray Oldenburg is a sociologist, anthropologist, and he wrote a book in the 80s called The Great Good Place. And in this book, he argues that human beings, in order to live fulfilled lives, must have three distinct places where they spend their time. Uh, one place is their home, where they spend time with their friends and family. Another place is their workplace, which preferably is not their home, where they go, and this is a social place where they spend time with other beings in the pursuit of work. And, and then they should have a third place, a social third place, which is not work or family. And so this would be the library or, um, you know, Cheers, the bar, someplace where you could go and socialize with people, the public square. And so uh, MySpace was uh, that third place in people's lives it was like a virtual nightclub you could show up and you could meet a bunch of people approach a bunch of people and adam and friends and meet a bunch of strangers and talk about all kinds of fun things and then facebook came out and what facebook built was our digital home 
the place where we friended the people we know and love, our friends and our family, and we had our dinner table conversations. And MySpace didn't realize this concept that there needed to be three places and believes itself to also be a digital home and tried to compete with Facebook instead of staying in its own lane. And by doing so, uh, it was not able to compete with Facebook because nobody wants a digital nightclub that they can live in turned into a home. And so it wasn't a very good first place, MySpace. And then it abandoned this concept of the third place. And in fact, today, it's a magic trick. It works every time since then. Go to Twitter, or I guess it's called X now, and, and do a search for the following phrase. I miss MySpace. What are the chances <laughs> that in December of 2023 that anyone would type those words, those exact words, I miss MySpace? Try it. I'm certain that you will be shocked of how many people every single day are writing those words. How is it possible for them to miss MySpace? Because to this day, we do not have a digital third place because MySpace did not realize that this is what was needed. And so that's what happened to it. It didn't understand what it was and tried to be someone else. And because of that, it failed. Amazing. Dimitri, great analysis. How do we find out more? How do we visit the marketplace? How do we go to Mind Studio? All of the above, please. Mm -hmm. Mindstudio.ai. You just go to mindstudio.ai. You will find the Mind Studio Builder. You will find the link to what we call our showcase, which is this marketplace. Uh, and you can explore it. You can create a free account and watch a YouTube tutorial and start building. You could be building your first AI in the next half hour. Launch your first AI in the next half hour after you hear this. I'm going to take you up on that. Dimitri, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. It's an amazing story. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We are out of time today, but yes, we come back. Take care, everyone. Be safe. Bye now. <laughs>